David, if once is a data point and twice is a trend, I guess three times makes it a tradition. So let's continue this tradition <laughs> of having a, a yearly interview. Looking back at 2022, uh, thanks for joining me, man. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, I'm a little bit outside of my element here doing the podcast instead of a written interview. But yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, actually, the first interview we did, the written one, was the first interview I ever did on the site. That's right. Two and a half years later, it's still one of the top five most popular posts of everything on the site, right? So people like to hear yeah. what you have to say. Just today, I was rereading part of it. I was quoting some excerpts, some gems that you, you gave in there. So no pressure, right? <laughs> you don't have to match that one, but that was a great one. So let's start at the beginning, right? Because some people listening to this won't be familiar with you. Maybe they haven't read the past interviews. I'm going to put them in the show notes. But if you could just begin with a little introduction about who are you, where are you from? Like, like it's the first day of school and you're the new kid, right? Just to give us an idea. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, so my real name is uh, David Kim. I go by Scuttle Blurb on Twitter, and that's also um, the name of my blog. I guess I have a pretty conventional background. My investment career started at Fidelity on the credit side. I was looking at insurance companies, went to business school, turned at Citadel between my first and second years, then worked at a long short equity fund coming out, and then launched my own thing in 2016. And today... I manage some outside capital, and I also write the Scuttleblur blog, which is about analyzing the competitive strengths of various companies and looking at them from an investment standpoint. I'd like you to tell this anecdote because you're one of the granddaddies of the kind of modern <laughs> online newsletter subscription website, like deep dives type of thing, right? And you told me about how when you started in 2017, how did you try to get the word out? Like, I, I know like postcards were involved. Like, It really wasn't like today, right? <laughs> Yeah, no, that's right. So I didn't even know that there was this thing, that there was a finance community on Twitter. Like, I didn't know that that was like a place where people shared ideas and links to different things. And so that just wasn't on my radar at all. And so when I was first starting this, it was really, I remember just, you know, cold emailing various money managers and giving them coupon codes to the site uh, <laughs> and doing kind of very like old school customer acquisition kind of tactics. But, you know, like really my, my main focus, I guess, when I was starting this was to manage money. And I didn't have like a network of wealthy family or friends to tap into. And I didn't really have a professional track record of my own. So I knew that it was going to take a long time to get to scale if I ever got to scale at all and to find the right kind of investors. And so I needed some way to bring in income in the meantime. And so writing has always been part of my investment process. So I thought maybe I could put this stuff online and, and see you would pay for it. And I guess my main inspiration, I mean, you call me the granddaddy of investment blogging, but really, I mean, that title goes to Ben Thompson, right? Yeah. So he was- He's the great granddaddy. Yeah. So he was really kind of the inspiration for me because my sort of perception of investment writing at the time was that it could be sort of bifurcated into two categories. I think like on the high end side, I've worked at funds where we would pay like thousands, <laughs> $10,000 or more for like independent investment research, not through sell side shops. And a lot of this stuff was like, wasn't even like particularly good or insightful. It was just thick, like it had a big HUD <laughs> factor, right? And so they could charge a lot of money for it. And that was like kind of at the high end of things. And then at the low end, like once you got to like research that was charging less than $200 a year, I found that a lot of that stuff was just like sensational schlock. Hmm. Right? And, I, and I think like Ben Thompson, that was like the first blog I had read that was like priced low enough that I could afford it. And that was also just like consistently insightful. 
And so, yeah, that was kind of like the spark. And it sort of was, uh, it let me know that you could charge an affordable low price for high quality research and kind of build a business off of that and generate income through that. So yeah, so most of that credit like goes to him, I got to say. Well, yeah, and he inspired me too, but I got to give you some credit and some thanks because when I started, I think it was you and Brooklyn Investor and Andrew Walker and probably a few more that I don't remember, but you guys kind of inspired me to say, hey, maybe I could try this thing too, right? And before Substack, the friction going into it was bigger because you have to set up your own website. If yeah. you want to charge something, you have to figure out how to hook up all the payments and everything. But once Substack was there, it was like, okay, like I press like five buttons and I have a site and then I got to figure out what I'm going to put in there. But I think so much financial stuff is very, I don't know, the way you wrote and the way the others I mentioned wrote was more like you're thinking along with the readers, right? You, you're bringing them in your thought process. You're not trying to sell them something. You're not putting all of the weight on like the valuation and try to convince you it's a good idea. It's more like, you know, let's learn about this business together. Let's like level up our knowledge of this industry, the dynamics, the competitors, how do they make money? What are the problems? Like, and then you can make up your own mind about, is it this type of stuff I understand? Is it the type of opportunity right now at the price it's trading at that I'm interested in? Because everybody has a different hurdle rate, right? That's one of the reasons I never write about valuation. First of all, I find it boring. Second of all, how can you generalize it to everybody that's reading what you're writing, right? Everybody has a different level of knowledge about this industry. So some are going to freak out at the first sign of trouble, while others will hold for years and years, no problem, right? Some have high hurdles, some have low hurdle rates, some are super diversified, some are super concentrated. So all these factors make it very hard to make a recommendation like this is cheap right now, this is expensive, right? It depends on these other factors. So like focusing more on the actual business itself was you know, super inspiring. And that's one of the things I love most about your writing. Yeah, no, that's great. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like all good investing is qualitative at the end of the day because there needs to be some kind of theory or, or basis backing the numbers that go into the spreadsheet that people use to come up with their valuations. But yeah, I also, I don't want to come across as like a mentor or some kind of guru. Right? <laughs> that's like the last thing I am. And so, you know, it's a discovery process for me, uh, like learning about these companies. And it's just kind of putting those thoughts out there in, in the public and, you know, getting things wrong and, and learning and growing. And so, yeah, by no means am I trying to come across as somebody just who, who knows it all, because, you know, I certainly don't. I'm glad you uh, pointed that out. Yeah. I'm curious, one effect I've found after putting my stuff in public, because I used to write tons of notes, but they were just private notes, right, from everything I was reading, excerpts and links and thoughts and everything. But putting them out there, the double effect is kind of like on one side, I'm thinking about them more clearly, because if you know someone else is going to read it, you can't skip steps, you can't hand wave away a few things, right? You, you have to think about it a bit more deeply, right? And that forces you to be better, I think. I don't know if you've saw that effect. And the other effect is just putting stuff out there means you're going to get feedback. And once you have enough readers, well, someone's always in some interesting position to give you information, right? You write about aerospace and some guy is going to email you and I work for Transline, right? And you write about some software company and a bunch of software engineers are going to write you and like these two things are so valuable. And I don't know if that's your experience too. Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, this kind of goes back to, you know, the Bezos six page hmm. memo thing, just like there's a lot of nuance that can't be captured in a PowerPoint slide and bullet points. Like sometimes you just need to like write it out to see if you understand the idea. But also I found that just the process of writing tends to conjure new avenues of exploration that you just wouldn't have thought to, to look at. And so, so yeah, it's a way to help clarify what you're thinking, but also I think it kind of stokes creativity too. 
I often see that writing is thinking. So the writing is not just putting on paper what you were already thinking, but the very act of writing itself is creating new thinking, right? You're going to yeah. think about stuff you weren't thinking before you were trying to put it down. That's another super powerful aspect of it to me. Yeah. And those that don't do it much, you know, it may look easy, but I don't know. Writing is, is very, hard. Very hard. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is. So I'm curious, right? This is kind of the annual review. So let's talk about 2022. I'm curious to hear your Do thoughts we have about... To? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess this... Okay, no, let's skip this year, right? This year kind of is a write-off. Uh, no, but I'm, I'm curious. Let's talk about 2022 for Scuttleblurb because I'm, mm -hmm. I'm curious about how the business is going, uh, what's new, what are challenges. But it's also after that, talk about 2022 in, in investing in the market. But let's start with, with Scuttleblurb. How was 2022? Yeah, I think that like, you know, 2018, 19, 20 were kind of the golden years <laughs> for Scuttleblurb. And then like growth began to tail off and then decline probably in like the, you know, second half of 2021. So it like kind of mirrors what's happened in the markets, I guess. Uh, maybe, you know, people feel poor or like they're switching industries. I don't really know, but it does seem like a lot of, you know, writers in this genre with, you know, more than a thousand paid subs has felt some kind of deceleration last year. I also think that like maybe there are just structural things in play that that are specific to me. Like if I look at my investment portfolio, it's kind of like a hodgepodge of of different companies. So it's like, you know, I own stuff like, you know, I've got Upwork, which is an online freelance marketplace. I've got Wizz Air, which is a low cost airline in Eastern Europe. Site One Landscaping, which supplies very sexy landscapers. <laughs> I also got like compoundary stuff like Charles Schwab and Amazon and Texas Instruments. And, and so like, you know, these companies, they've got, they're in different industries. They've got different growth profiles, different uh, margin structures. And I like it that way. Right. But I think that when you try to take that same approach to a uh, subscription blogging business, you run into some difficulties because most people's like you know interest graphs don't um <laughs> aren't, aren't that kind of random or all over the place so like you know like if you're interested in data and observability companies you're probably also going to be interested in like cybersecurity because those two domains are kind of fusing together but there's also going to be probably like some imperfect overlap with semiconductors and the fang stocks and and that kind of stuff but there's probably be almost like no overlap with you know like less than truckload carriers. Yeah, Sherwin-Williams, which I also own. And so I think that can be a little bit jarring. And I think maybe two or three years ago, it maybe wasn't such a big deal because there was just less competition, right? So like if you were somebody who was interested in semiconductors, you might like come across my blog and you, you might see that I've written a few things about it. Like I wrote a two-parter on NVIDIA. I've written about like Cadence and Synopsys, analog devices, right? And you might say, okay, you know, I might pay $210 a year just for this stuff. And there's some other loosely related stuff that I might be interested on in this blog, right? Because there just weren't a lot of other options out there, right? But today there are like, you know, probably... 10 different substacks just devoted to semiconductors, right? Yeah. Um, and so if you're really interested in semiconductors, you're probably not going to spend your money on Scuttleblurb. You're going to subscribe to like Fabricated Knowledge, right? Which is a, yeah. uh, a little shout out there. Yeah, it's a good site. So I think there's some of that in play. It, basically, you know, I'm sort of being unbundled, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> right? I find that like some of the more popular 
sites in this genre, they do a good job of like mixing timely and timeless content, right? And just to go back to Ben Thompson, like I think he does a very good job at this. Hmm. So if there's some big news story in tech on any given day, you can be sure that Ben's going to write about it, right? Yeah. But he's not just reporting the news. He's going to write about it, but he's going to put it in a more like durable strategy framework, right? Whereas like the timely part doesn't matter to me. <laughs> I'm more focused on like the timeless stuff. And I think where that runs into issues is like, you know, let's say you subscribe to my site, you're looking through your email inbox and you see like I've written something on like old Dominion freight lines, right? And you might be interested in that. But there's another email that you've got about like ChatGPT. Right? <laughs> so like, which one are you going to read? Right, you're going to read the ChatGPT one, right? Because everyone's talking about that, and it's like this big, new disruptive technology. And you're going to say, well, okay, I'm going to read this stuff, and then I'm going to I'm going to save the old Dominion post for later today. But of course, you don't get to it. The day passes, and then there's some other big, you know, timely new story that everyone's talking about. And then before you know it, like that old Dominion post, I mean, it's gone. <laughs> like it's, it's just off the radar. And it's down like the memory hole. It's down the memory hole. Exactly. So those are kind of more, I think, like two structural challenges to like the way that I write. The reason I, I started the blog in the first place was because it was something that I could do that was complementary to the investment side of the business. The two parts were synergistic, right? But if I were to actually treat Scuttle Blurb as a business, and I was really interested in growing it and making it a big thing, there are different choices I would make as far as content goes. And were I to make those choices, suddenly the two businesses wouldn't be quite as complementary, if that makes sense, right? right. It, would, it would be more like I was, um, I would have to like divide my time between these two things, instead of feeling like, you know, one thing was reinforcing the other. Yeah, right now you can use the same inputs to produce two outputs. Yes, right. Yeah, that's super interesting. As someone who writes something that's also kind of hard to describe to a new reader, right? Mm -hmm. I don't even know what I do. I write about whatever I find interesting. So I have all these different topics. And almost everybody is a specialist today, but there's a few of us kind of generalists. Our only advantage is being really curious and trying to find stuff at the intersections of the other fields or doing yeah. a bunch of 80-20s that all together add up to something decent, right? Because <laughs> you're never yeah. going to be the specialist at their own field. Yeah. But I find that your strengths are often your weaknesses. So you may see it as a weakness that it's hard to compete against specialist sites on certain topics. But another way to see it is that your target audience is people trying to expand their circles of competence, trying to learn about new businesses and new industries. And if you were only focusing on one, you would probably have a lot of competition Because as you say, there's like 50 Substacks writing about every popular niche. But there's not that many of them that are doing what you're doing, right? That are writing about tons and tons of different things that can expand. Like, So that may not be as popular by itself, but it's also much more differentiated. It's, it's much harder to do well, right? Yeah. Someone else trying to do the same thing that you're doing needs a lot more general knowledge. And I don't know, just having the curiosity to keep going for years and years doing that is very hard if it's not really coming from inside, right? If it's not intrinsic motivation. Clearly, you're not doing this because you think it's the best, most popular marketing thing. It's because that's how you learn about things, right? And you're sharing it with us. Well, if someone looked at Scuttleblurb and said, oh, that's a popular newsletter. I'm just going to copy the, the model, right? Well, they're going to burn out after six months, right? If it's not really coming from inside, if it's not yeah. really how they, they think about about learning about you know, businesses and industries. So I don't know, like I have a lot more timely stuff in my newsletter. So that I think that helps me there to kind of almost always have something that's more popular in the moment. I would find it difficult too if 
I was out of sync for a while with the zeitgeist, right? If everybody's yeah. talking about chat GPT and I'm like, okay, this month I have Sherwin Williams and like, it's going to be a great <laughs> deep dive, but, but it's not quite in sync, right? While yeah. maybe like six years ago or something, Sherwin Williams was actually like very real and fin to it, right? Bluegrass mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. <laughs> all these guys were talking yeah, about that's it. That's right. So, uh -huh. so once in a while you're in sync, but once in a while you're not, I don't know. That, that's a good, uh, that's a trade off. Yeah, there's like, there's different ways to like categorize things. I think most people, their interest graph is sort of related to like industry, I guess, right? Like you're interested in like tech broadly, or you're interested in industrials broadly. But there's a class of investors who are interested in like compoundary companies. And like, we yeah. all know what those are, right? It's like kind of the usual suspects. It's like Moody's, Constellation Software, and that kind of stuff. And, and they're different industries, but they all fall within that same kind of category, yeah. like compounder category it's like a meta category yeah and people who are interested in that stuff they're not going to be they're not going to want to read like you know something on teledoc for example right so there's different ways that you can slice and dice this but yeah i mean like i, I guess it just goes to the point that like i'm not i'm not here trying to like claim any kind of like expertise here right i mean certainly i know a lot about the stocks that i own for the accounts I manage and, and personally, but that's like, you know, a fraction of the stocks of the companies I actually write about. So I can't, I certainly can't claim to be an expert on all of the stuff that's on the blog. It is just a generalist. I'm a generalist trying to figure things out, I guess. Yeah, well, I'd like to see who's an expert on all those companies, right? I don't know if it exists. I think the value is in learning along with you. That's one thing I love about your writing. It's not pretending to be like a Wikipedia page about the company, right? It's like, Oh, I'm thinking about this. I wonder about that. Like, I found this, but I'm not sure. Like, it's it's all probabilistic and nuanced. And the questions you're asking yourself are, like, probably the same questions I would ask myself if I was looking at the thing, right? So it's a way to think along with you. You're bringing people along. And part of the value of that is not only the, the actual facts that you're learning about the company, is that after you read a bunch of those, you learn to learn, right? You learn to learn about new companies. You learn what questions should I ask about, right? What should I look at? Because you can never look at everything. There's just too many things you could spend oh, a year on just one company if you look at everything. But some things are more important than others. So after a while, you find patterns like, okay, what kind of stuff should I look at with competitors, with industry dynamics? Is there a secular trend in there? Is there like stuff comes back again and again. And that yeah. to me is part of like the No, you're not a guru, but there's still like a little bit of a teacher thing going on. Like there's an education that your readers are getting. And that's part of what I love about it. Yeah, well, no, that's great. Yeah. And, and there are, I guess, like common frameworks that apply to all these different industries. Like I talk about scale economies a lot and scale economies can express themselves in different ways. And so, uh, yeah, there, there are some kind of framework that apply across different companies and industries. So it's not totally random, I guess. A lot of people will learn about a bunch of frameworks, right? And then they'll try to apply them everywhere and over-apply them everywhere and see the patterns where they're not. So the next step is kind of like to learn when the frameworks apply and what the base rates are for them and, and to stop basically having the, the man with a hammer seeing nails everywhere thing, right? Yeah, so yeah. You don't want to be creating like epicycles everywhere <laughs> and try to make everything fit into your preconceived way of, of thinking about the world. Yeah, that's right. To go back to what you mentioned about the kind of newsletter cycle following kind of the market cycle, our friend MBI also published his annual letter recently. And I was looking at his, he shared his metrics and you shared some of your metrics too. And I think it's the Visa and MasterCard post and looking at those side by side, like you can see kind of the, the very similar curve. And I'm on some group chats with other newsletter writers and I, I've seen some of their metrics and it's like, It feels like there's a kind of a macro thing going on here. And so I don't think any newsletter writer can't 
put too much blame on themselves for what's been going on in 2022 because it seems to have happened across the board. I don't know if it's what you said, right? Some people just like blew up or they're like, ah, screw this, like investing's not for me anymore or they're just tightening the budget a little bit, right? Unsubscribing yeah. from a few things. But it, it definitely feels like there's a, a macro trend. And the question I can't help but wonder is, what's the normal trend? Was 2020, mm -hmm. 2021 like a bubble of trend, like weird temporary thing? And now we're back to a more normal environment or maybe 2021 was too much, but is 2022 too low, right? Is it somewhere in between? It's, it's very hard to know, but I can't help but wonder what's the kind of uh, normal trend. Yeah. 2022 for me was kind of like, it wasn't terrible in that my paid subs mostly went sideways, mm -hmm. but just the change of trend was strong enough that I changed my business model. I used to have yeah. everything free, uh, right. like voluntary payment, just pay if you want to, right? But you still have access to the same stuff. And after like about a year of that, at some point, it just didn't feel as good to be working just as hard and <laughs> to go sideways, right? So I changed the model a bit. Yeah. And so how, how has that gone now that you've sort of changed the model? Have you noticed anything different? Do you, um, are, you, are you happy that, that you made that change? I did the change in mid-November, So it was right before U.S. Thanksgiving. And then after that, it was the December holidays. So I feel like the picture is kind of like muddy because of yeah. all these things. So I think I'm going to start seeing now, right, in, in the beginning of the year, what's the new normal really is. But so far, it's been really good. Like the trend has moved back up to kind of like what it was in 2021. Uh, I've got a lot of feedback of people telling me it was the right thing to do. It was just like basically normal, right? Everybody did yeah, it. I, I was I the so. one trying to do the weird model, trying to make it work. And to me, it, it was working until 2022. I know it's not a rocket ship, right? I know it could convert more people and like all that kind of stuff, but it, it felt like enough. If it had kept going on that trend, it would have felt like enough for me. I liked having the extra reach that not having a paywall gives you because that's one of the trade-offs. I'm sure you feel the same sometimes, right? It's like, oh, I wrote something great. I wish everybody could read it, right? But I also have to pay the bills and feed my kids. So yeah, it's always a trade-off between reach and monetization. Yeah, so you've been writing your Substack for going on three years, right? About two and a half. I started in July 2020. And has there been anything so far that you've been surprised by, either like positively or, or negatively? I think everything surprised me. <laughs> like the, you, humans are such that you get used to stuff really quickly so now it kind of seems normal but if i try to put myself back in like how i was at the time when i started it i had no idea where it was going it was just kind of a side hobby right it's like oh if i have a thousand subscribers at the end of the year i'm going to be happy right yeah but it was much more than that it's like oh wow okay some people kind of like the same kind of stuff i like that's cool You write about all, I mean, you're more eclectic than I am <laughs> because you, you, you bust outside of like the business and finance category entirely. And you write yep. about TV shows and the arts, but what do you think, which parts of like, uh, of your writing do you think get the most traction or the, or the most readership? Is there any way to know that? I can't be sure. I've, I did a survey once and a few polls where I asked people like rank your favorite subcategory and mm -hmm. like, is there something you read every time, right? You read business every time, you read science and tech every time. And I also asked, is there one that you skip every time? From the survey, I know that about 50% of my readers work in finance. So I'm guessing that this is the main thing, right? So most people follow okay. me on Twitter, probably follow me for finance stuff. And so they get in for finance, but it seems pretty, pretty varied. If I go by the polls and the feedback I get, there's no category I could remove and everybody would be happy, right? There's an audience for every subcategory. And so some people, they're really into like the weird intros. Like my wife skipped businesses every time, right? But she loves the art section at the end. Uh -huh. And I get a bunch of feedback every time I write about a book or a TV show. Uh, I feel like 
probably the central one is the business section, but some people probably are, are into the weird intros. Some people are really into the, the art stuff or the science and tech stuff. The service I'm trying to provide is most people, as I was mentioning earlier, are specialists. The, the way to get ahead in life and your career is to specialize in something. And so most people don't have a ton of time to explore everywhere else. So I'm kind of like exploration as a service, right? I'm like, okay, I'm going to spend my days looking at all kinds of stuff. Whatever I find interesting, I'm going to put in there. And hopefully it's curated in a way that resonates with you. Yeah. And and if it does, like you're going to discover stuff you may not have found otherwise. Or maybe you have found it, but I, I summarized a five-page thing and I gave you the highlights, right? So you're saving some time and so that's kind of like the service i'm trying to provide yeah 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 that makes sense and like how do you consistently find content for your sub stack i mean are you do you have like a defined reading list every day that you're going through certain sources that you reliably tap into or, or is it just kind of like you know you're going through twitter and you're coming across things in a more sort of like haphazard manner I think it's Will from In Practice who described me as the serpentity engine, right? So it's kind of like just random. It's purely like I have a tons of tabs open and one thing leads to the other. I have some favorite websites that I check again and again and I tend to find more stuff there. But I have this Notion file where I'll bookmark stuff I find interesting. And this mm -hmm. always grows faster than it shrinks. So it's trending towards infinity. So whenever there's a kind of a slow week where I'm finding fewer things just organically that week, I'll look in there and I'll find some older, like evergreen things I can write about. But I feel like I could write like five editions a week and still not run out of stuff. So somehow it's kind of like everybody has different skills. And one of my skills is just like finding stuff, right? Finding interesting yeah. stuff, finding people, finding blogs, finding books, yeah. finding... Yeah, well, hey, like you actually discovered me. Like I think the, the whole reason I joined Twitter, like... I think you, what was the post? I think maybe it was my Moody's post. And I think you uh, sent a link out on Twitter. And that's what kind of like got the snowball ro rolling. This was like back in 2017, I think. So, so yeah. That's great. I remember that. Thank you. <laughs> happy, happy <laughs> it happened the way it did, man. I, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's probably the same reason why it's hard to describe what I do, because I don't really know how I do it, right? It's just an extension of my personality, basically. It's like yeah. if we're sitting at a table you know, with a bowl of peanuts and some scotches and chatting about random stuff that we find interesting. Well, that's kind of like the same stuff I'm putting in a newsletter. Yeah, yeah. There's no method to the madness, <laughs> really. Yeah, 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 I like it. So 2022 was kind of like, you know, bad year overall. We'll talk about the market, but for newsletters, it was kind of hard. Like partly it's probably what you said, like there's more competition. There's probably fewer people willing to as easily subscribe or pay for things. And so all that was kind of hard. So you have like plans, like what's the next move, right? I know you recently launched a new thing. Do you want to talk about it? And do you have like, <laughs> are you going to launch a TikTok channel yeah. with dances or top of funnel <laughs> stuff or... What's yeah, thanks move? Thanks for that, that segue there. Um, yeah, so like I recently launched a uh, Substack. So there's a Substack version of Scuttleblurb. It's going to run alongside the WordPress version of Scuttleblurb. So it's going to be the same exact content. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of Substack. I mean, I've, I really like what they've done with the product. The app is like one of the first things I open in the morning. And so just from a consumer's perspective, I really like what they've done. And then like, you know, I've, I've started to just in the last five or six days, I'm porting over my content and I'm, you know, just tweaking a few things in Substack. And I, I just really like the experience from like a creator standpoint. Hmm. And I don't think I realized how like, because right now the WordPress site that I use, it's kind of like an amalgamation of <laughs> like a dozen different plugins that make it work. And so I've got a plugin for, 
you know, subscriptions for the e-commerce store. It's kind of a mess because sometimes these plugins, they don't play well together. But it was a mess that I thought was like tolerable and something I could sort of put up with. But now I'm using like the Substack and it's just such a good experience. And it just makes what I was doing before seem much more <laughs> difficult uh, by comparison. And so, yeah, just really happy with the product. So I've got that out there and uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> So you say it's the exact same content. Any plans to expand to like a free list or something? Because I know our common friend MBI mm -hmm. um, used to be kind of like on the same model as you. I, actually, I think he said that you were the inspiration for MBI Deep Dives. But recently he started to build the kind of free list, right? He has this newsletter where even if you're not a paid member of MBI Deep Dives, you can still get updates when he posts like he has a earning analysis and he has a bunch of free stuff once in a while right and he plans yeah. to do something similar maybe okay for my newsletter my newsletter is more personality based and by that i mean <laughs> i have this framework in my head where it's like every like type of content is on the spectrum between like utility and personality and a bunch of people think that all they want is utility right i just like, give me ideas i want to invest i want to make money like give me facts and <laughs> advice right but I think people mostly lie to themselves. I think most of them are more on the personality side than they would admit. So most people, I think they subscribe to Ben Thompson because they just kind of like him and like reading his stuff and listening to him on podcasts and they like the way he thinks, right? And there's the optionality that they're going to have ideas about Fang and about these companies and get investment ideas. But they generally mostly do it just because they find it fun. They find it entertaining and interesting and they learn stuff. And even if they don't make investments based on Ben Thompson stuff, they're probably still subscribing, right? Yeah. I feel like I'm a little further in that direction where because my stuff is hard to say like, this is what it's about. It's more like if your Venn diagram of interests are kind of overlapping with mine, maybe you don't know what I'm going to give you, but you may be interested because we are kind of like similar, right? We have similar curiosity. Yeah, right. I feel like deep dives like you and MBI are a little bit more on the utility side than what I'm doing because it's more like specifically about company X, right? It's about one very specific thing. And like, okay, this month I wrote about Visa and then I'm going to write about Cloudflare and then so on. Um, yep. I feel that even the people subscribing to your stuff, because they think they want the utility, they probably are still looking for some of that personality, right? So if you read a bunch of your stuff over time, you kind of start to know your personality and how you think about things. And, and that's part of the appeal, I feel like. So if you had more of a free thing, people could get to know you a little bit more, trust you enough to press the subscribe button with the payment. I feel like that would be very good for you. And because your stuff is good, it would be good for your readers too, right? That's one thing I've been discussing with MBI a lot is a bunch of us are a bunch of nerds and we're introverts and it feels really weird to like, promote our stuff and market our stuff and try to tell people like you should subscribe you should pay for it, it feels super weird but if you are really mm -hmm. convinced that what you're doing is good work and useful work and that it's providing a lot more value than like 10 or 20 bucks a month or whatever right because most of your readers are investing much bigger sums right most of them are not like tiny investors if mm -hmm. it's really good and it's really helping them then it's almost like a disservice you're doing to people not to promote it not to market it not to make it easy to find and easy to subscribe and, and all that kind of stuff right it's like you're yeah. uh, keeping a good thing away from them right that's how i try to think about it when I, i have to do this marketing stuff that feels weird to me all that to say i think if you had more of a free thing if people got to know you a little bit more like they didn't have to pay to see your stuff i think it would really help yeah i've been thinking about ways to do that without sort of I guess, taking up too yeah. much of my time. Could because, it be a preview uh, for a post? Yeah, so exactly. So that that's something I was kind of exploring because one of the cool things you can do on Substack is you can impose the paywall like, you know, anywhere on the post, right? And so that's a really nice feature. So it might be one of those things where 
I put that paywall in like a third of the way through the post or 20% of the way through the post, or maybe, you know, I start taking things that are a few years old off the paywall. Like, I don't know. There's different ways to do it. I don't think I want to produce more content. Though. Right. <laughs> I just have to think maybe more creatively about the stuff I'm already doing, I think. But yeah, like Ben Thompson, he's kind of like playing a different <laughs> game, right? I mean, because he's kind of like become kind of the standard in tech, like it's just something you have to read if you work in tech. Yeah, like, he's a shelling point by now. Exactly. Yeah. Because like everyone references him and, you know, people talk about his posts and he's doing like all these podcasts now. And so like he's really like top of mind. Right. And so that's a little bit of a different. Yeah. He, he has higher ambitions. <laughs> with, well, actually, work, I, I feel like in the past year, he's kind of reinvented himself. I don't have a good sense of time, so I can't exactly say when, like what period, but there was a period where I think he got lost in a certain direction that he himself didn't like that much. So he ended up writing almost like all the time about like Facebook regulation and the EU and like, okay, Congress is passing this bill and it's all super important stuff. And it was great that he was doing it. But at some point it felt like he wasn't as into it. And so, but, but I don't think he knew how to get out of it for a while. But no, I think he's done it brilliantly. I think he's found a way to kind of like, get out from that jam and the podcasting stuff mm -hmm. and he's like launching new creators around him like uh, sharp china and all that stuff and his daily stuff has gotten more varied and now that he's not like the new guy the underdog now that he has access he's using it to do these interviews with like jensen from nvidia and and satya from microsoft and like he's using his newfound access and power and distribution because now if he's launching a new podcast even if he's not on it all the time he has the distribution right he has the audience to make it instantly much more successful than, than, than if the thing was starting from zero. So he's yeah. kind of creating a Ben Thompson bundle. So that, that's yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, totally. Yeah. I'm curious about, um, so as a generalist, right, you were asking me, where do I find my ideas? I'm kind of curious about the same thing for you. And if your research process has changed over time, like, is it still just, you know, something's interesting, you make a note and next month I'm going to write about this, or is, is there more of a method to it? Has it changed much since like 2017? The research process itself hasn't really changed at all, to be honest. As far as how I find stuff to write about on the site, it's mostly just building on stuff that I've written about before. Mm. And so like, I feel like if you're, if you're doing this right, like when you're researching a company, you're never researching like just that company, right? You're, like, you're looking at their competitors, their suppliers, the overall ecosystem in which that company operates. And so you're, you're looking at like four or five different companies at least. So like, you know, if you're writing about... Visa and MasterCard, you're probably also going to like tiptoe into like merchant acquirers and issuer processors and wallets and payfax. And so like, you know, payments is a particularly rich space with like, you know, lots of veins to mine and or even like something like Moody's. You might look at Moody's and then learn about like standards based moats. And that's also kind of relevant for MSCI or, or Veris. And so you might write about those companies and apply that same kind right. of framework. And so I've probably got like dozens of write-ups that are in like various states of completion that I just haven't published. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And so like some of these date back to like 2018 or, you know, 2019. And are they uh, dead or are they all still just in various stages of progress? And like you go back once in a while or sometimes you finish something and instead of starting something new, you look at the old pile, right? And you revive something or how does that work? Yeah, sometimes I'll, I'll go back, but for the most part, they're kind of just in cold storage. <laughs> like I, <laughs> like 
the reason I don't publish those is because ultimately, like, I just don't think I have a point of view or I don't feel mm-hmm. like I'm adding anything to the conversation. But, like, you can't know that ahead of time, right? It's just hard to know that you don't have anything interesting or thoughtful to say until you start to right. actually do the work, right? It's the classic line. If we knew what we were looking for, it would be research. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And so, like, it, it's interesting because, like, when you're... When you're going for timeliness, like Ben's doing, you have the prompt already served up to you. Like the prompt is whatever people are talking about that day, right? But when you're writing about like a company, the prompt isn't very well defined. And in some sense, that gives you more freedom to move. Like there's more surface area as far as like things that you can actually discuss. But you also have to be like careful not to rehash things that like everybody already knows, right? Like so if I were to write about why meta is a good business and i spend most of the write-up talking about like network effects right like you know that that's not wrong but it's like thanks 2010 wants their thesis back <laughs> you know what i mean like that yeah and that, that's like an obvious case but sometimes i just find with these write-ups that like the right answer and the relevant answer is also the very obvious answer that everyone knows and there's not something like an att or chat gpt that has like potentially That potentially changes the game for this company or this industry in a big way. And so it's like, why am I writing about this at all? Right. (laughs) So, yeah. So I just end up with a lot of write-ups that just don't make it. (laughs) Yeah, no, that makes sense. That was a question I wanted to ask you. Is it ever the case that you're going to spend a ton of time researching something and at the end of it, you're like, uh, okay, I don't have anything usable here, right? I can't write about this or I just don't have an opinion or I just don't understand the industry or the company or just like all this research just didn't lead anywhere. I think close to 70% of my subscribers are professional investors. So like, I just think if it seems boring and obvious to me, it's probably going to be boring and obvious to everyone else. And I just, I don't know. I I might like reference those write-ups for my own private use, but I see no reason why to like clutter the conversation and and publish it, you know. And speaking of publishing, I'm curious if of what you published in 2022, is there is there anything that stood out, right? Any companies that, you know, you found most interesting or you found most perplexing or uh, I was looking at the list and it's, as we were saying earlier, it's super varied, right? It's like Dexcom, GFL, Texas Instrument, Trupanion, Salesforce, various, right? It's like super wide scope, super wide uh, range of industries and companies. Any of those stand out to you as partially interesting or, you know, you're prouder of the write-up or anything stands out looking back? Yeah. I mean, I guess like Carvana <laughs> would be one that'd be interesting. <laughs> that was eventful. To talk about. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think my my knowledge here is going to be a little bit dated because I think I wrote this thing almost a year ago and I just haven't really kept up with the story. But yeah, I think there was like somebody sent a tweet a little while ago and I think I shared it with you and that said like, well, the red flag here was like they were generating negative adjusted EBITDA, right? <laughs> and I felt like, well, like there are red flags at Carvana for sure. I think negative adjusted EBITDA, I don't think that would be the thing I would use to disqualify it. Because I mean, by, by that criteria, by itself, almost right? any, yeah, in the early stages of scale, you know, Snowflake or Amazon early on or Walmart early on would have been uninvestable, right? I think like the, the more important thing, I think with these companies that are in the early stages of scale is just the trajectory of unit economics, right? And I think you, you can have a situation where a company has positive and improving unit economics and is still burning tons of cash and generating negative EBITDA. Like those things are not incompatible, right? But if you're doing that as a company, you either have to have the balance sheet to support that 
or you're just going to be dependent on on the charity of the markets, right? And I think like back when I was looking at Carvana, it had close to six billion. Like this was pro forma for the Adessa acquisition, but close to like six billion of unsecured debt. So that excludes all the asset backed stuff and like less than a hundred million of EBITDA, right? And this isn't mm-hmm. like you know if you look at a business like Transdime, right? They sell these small mission critical maintenance components. In the aftermarket, they realize huge margins on that stuff. It doesn't require a lot of capital to run. And so like, yeah, you could put like five or six turns of leverage on that kind of business. Or more, yeah, and they yeah, do. Yeah, more, yeah. <laughs> and probably be fine, right? You know, if you're missing a valve to like, you know, a fuel pump or whatever, like the plane can't fly. <laughs> you need every, every piece needs to be there. Yeah, and, if you don't have the parts, it's going to cost you a lot more than the price of the parts, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. And, you know, Transdime... I think like for 80% of the components they sell, they're like the only supplier, right? And so Carvana is like kind of the opposite of that, right? I mean, it's like, you know, operationally complex business that became even more complex with these supply chain snarls and labor shortages post-COVID. Plus they're entering a period of rising rates and a funding sensitive business, which reduced demand and sent unit economics going the other way. It's very capital intensive. So like when you heap a ton of debt onto that, I mean, it becomes like a very precarious situation. So like, I think, yes, you can say that there were all these unforeseen events related to the macro, but unforeseen events happen all the time. And so like something like this was going to eventually happen and Carvana was not built for resilience. But there was a reason I wrote about this company is because like, I actually thought it was like an interesting business model, right? The equity could be a zero, probably is a zero, but the business model itself is interesting and there's probably positive like enterprise value here. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think this was a case where the business model was interesting. I think that, yeah, their, their ego was just, you know, writing checks that their balance sheet couldn't cash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the thing with these probabilistic, you know, it wasn't 100% that it was going to happen this way, right? There's an alternate history somewhere in a different universe right now where Carvana is mm-hmm. fine, right? Because the market just, you know, I don't know, went a different way that was yes. worked better with the way they were geared and they were able to transition out of it somehow, right? Over a few years. But in this universe, <laughs> well, they kind of ran out of time. Yeah, it's interesting because I thought, so I looked at this as an investment, I ultimately put this in the too hard pile because I was scared of the leverage and I was scared of the valuation. But as it was kind of selling off, I thought it was maybe like a binary bet, right? And mm. like maybe it was like a zero, but it could be like a five or 10x. And maybe this is backward looking, but now I'm maybe thinking that, you know, disaster was maybe inevitable because at some point, just because the management team was just so aggressive, we often think about like a large addressable market as like this unalloyed positive thing. But I like in the wrong hands, I feel like the bigger the TAM, the more rope you can give a company to hang itself, right? Because like the yeah. way that you get yourself in a position where you've got this big unsustainable debt load and huge cash burn and negative profits is that you're able to justify that by saying, well, we only have 2% of the TAM, right? So yeah, I don't know. I, I think like the write-up, I could have done that a lot better. <laughs> I think I focused way too much on like the business model and how that could be interesting at scale. But it doesn't really matter if you can't get to the finish line, right? And so I I spent like maybe a paragraph on the balance sheet, but I should have devoted a lot more time to that. Yeah, though it's not like it's the only business that ran into problem in the past year, right? A bunch of much better businesses than Carvana are down almost as much. So it was hard to single out as a particularly bad mistake, I guess. Yeah, 
Well, this was <laughs> this is what I do think was a particularly uh, <laughs> a particularly devastating um, outcome. The stock, I mean. Oh yeah, um, for sure, for sure. No, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm not trying to sugarcoat it. I'm just trying to think of like the alternate history where the market is doing great and Carvana is down 99 percent or something. It's like, hey, yeah, oh, right. you really picked the wrong one. But right now, there's like hundreds and hundreds of businesses down like 60, 70, 80 percent. Like it's down more. But there were so many ways to lose money in the past year. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. I'm curious to talk a little bit about one I know more, right? Because I, I don't know much about Carvana except what I read in your piece. But what do you think about Texas Instruments? That's a fun one, I think. That's a, a very, very old school, very interesting business. I think there are a lot of parallels with something like Transdime, right? They sell a lot of these small... It's the kind of stuff that that's like absolutely necessary for almost any electronic product to run, but that you just wouldn't even think to know was in there, right? They manufacture these analog chips that convert analog phenomenon into um, digital signals that, you know, your thermostat or anything that runs on electricity. Could, and a uh, car, uses. a washing machine, a dishwasher, a TV, like anything. <laughs> yeah. And so they're, they're found pretty much everywhere. And so I like a business with those kind of characteristics where it just kind of runs in the background and you take it for granted, but they're essential to the functioning of everyday life. <laughs> yeah, I think one interesting thing about them versus other semiconductors is analog is kind of like its own thing, right? It's on the side yeah. and analog engineers are not the same as digital engineers. It requires different training. It's almost like, you know, people keep calling it black magic, but it's like, it's more esoteric, yeah, right? right. You, you almost have to learn it by doing for a while. You need the experience. There's not tons of analog engineers coming out of university all the time, ready to like have new startups to compete with Texas Instruments and analog devices and all these companies, right? And the catalog is so wide, like yeah. they have hundreds of thousands of SKUs and they sell every one of them for like, I don't know, 50 cents, uh, a couple bucks, yeah. right? And so if you want to compete, you have to recreate these SKUs one by one by investing upfront a bunch of money and then you're selling these chips for pennies and then you have to do that thousands and thousands of times to even make a dent in the catalog. It feels almost impossible to exactly. compete with, right? Of course, like I'm sure like China yeah is spinning up a bunch of trailing edge fabs and they're going to do a bunch of that, right? Especially now that they can't do much on the cutting edge because of all of the restrictions placed on them by the US to get ASML and TSMC and all these critical parts of the supply chain to do leading edge nodes. But still, yeah. even if competition goes up there, it feels very, very hard to attack. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that management is like so rational, it's one of the only companies like they have a yearly capital allocation call and they're going to put up slides right. and, and explain how they think about allocating capital between different segments of the business. And they're they're running off certain segments that are not giving enough ROICs. And all they care about is free cash flow per share. They're not optimizing for margins or for growth. Or for, like I wish we could clone some of these guys and like sprinkle them over other companies so that they could inject some of that culture everywhere because it's, it's kind of rare. Yeah, absolutely. And they're going through a big CapEx cycle now. The returns on, on these fabs that they're building are just enormous. <laughs> I mean, like, because they're, they're not building, like, the leading-edge chips. They're kind of on, on, like, prior generation nodes for the most part. And so, yeah, I mean, they might invest, like, $6 billion up front for a fab. But these fabs run for, like, 30 years. I think the one they're shutting down has been up and running for, like, 50 years, right? <laughs> and they're getting, like, $6 billion, you know, at capacity each of these fabs at, you know, probably 60%, 70% type margins. And so it's just massively positive NPV bet. So I feel good about their prospects. Yeah, and whenever they have unsold inventory, the life of these chips is so long that they just pile them up and sell them later. These things don't yeah. 
age very quickly. It's not like NVIDIA's, right? If they order too many cutting-edge chips from TSMC and they can't sell them, well, in two years, they're not going to be cutting-edge anymore, right? The value declines rapidly. But yeah. some chip that was made 20 years ago, maybe the exact same one that they're putting in cars or washing machines today. Yeah, that's right. Cool. Last thing I wanted to talk about is I'm curious if you had any advice to give to someone starting and in investing, right? Because I sometimes get people, friends of friends, or people ask me what I do, and I tell them a little bit, and then they start wanting to talk about investing. And my advice is kind of like similar to Buffett, right? It's like, go buy some index funds and <laughs> don't touch them. And if it's not something you want to do full time, you're not passionate about, you're not getting intrinsic value out of just doing it, it's probably not worth trying to even be fancier than that. But apart from that, right, if someone comes to you and says, yeah, yeah, okay, I understand that, but I want to do more, right? I want to learn more. Apart from maybe reading Scuttleblurb, is there any advice you'd give to these people <laughs> to get on the path? Yeah, I mean, there's just so many different styles of investing, right? And they can, they can all work. Somebody like David Tepper, he seems to take more of a macro approach and express those views through equities. Someone like Citadel will do like bottoms up work, but they'll do it to like try to call the quarter, right? And, mm. and somebody like Acre Capital will also do the deep fundamental work, but they're thinking like business owners that they want to own these companies for forever, essentially, right? And so, you know, like some people say the long term is just a series of short terms. And that's like something that people say more often when when the markets are, are down, right? So like in 2021, it was like never sell. Then, <laughs> then last year, it felt like more never of Never cover your shorts. And, and I think like that's technically true. Like the long term is a series of short terms, but it changes the nature of the questions that you ask, right? So if you're wrestling with both long-term questions and short-term questions, like the short-term questions are always going to win. They just will. If you think about a 10-year time horizon as just a series of 120 months, You're not going to ask like 10-year questions. You're going to ask one-month questions. Yeah, this is going to sound like pretty cliche, I guess, but you want to you know, go with a, an investment style that suits your personality because that's the one you're going to be able to stick with. Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like just most of the like longer-term lessons in investing, they, they sound like pretty – like we all kind of know what those yeah. are, right? It's like you know, pick a style that appeals to you. you know, think of volatility as like changes in opportunity costs rather than changes in the scorecard. You know, don't over-extrapolate. Think for yourself. It's just kind of like consistently applying those lessons in practice. That's the hard part and takes experience. I would say that in my younger years, like so when I was like in my 20s and, and first getting started, I used to be like really attracted to like complex ideas, right? And I used to think of like investing as mostly about IQ. And I think like over time, as I've transitioned from like an analyst role to more of a risk-taking role, I've come to appreciate the relevance of like emotional intelligence. So it's like things like, can you change your mind? Are you capable of hearing counterpoints without being defensive or losing your temper? Are you like, you know, consciously aware of your emotional state as you receive certain types of information? Also like the, the kinds of intelligence maybe changes as you age. I was listening to this podcast. I don't remember which one, but the guy being interviewed was just talking about like the difference between fluid intelligence and crystallized intelligence. And I think he was saying that in your youth, like in your teens and 20s, fluid intelligence is maybe more dominant where it's about like processing power and memory. And then as you age, that sort of diminishes. And But your crystallized intelligence becomes more of a factor where, where that's more about pattern matching mm. and wisdom and, and that kind of stuff. And so I think all of that stuff, 
the pattern matching, the wisdom, the, the emotional awareness, that kind of like just rolls up into judgment, right? And I think judgment is kind of the thing that that is maybe the key thing sort of separating like analysts from risk takers. And there are like two different kinds of errors that you can make in investing. I think the first kind of error is you have a thesis about a company and it, and it just doesn't play out, right? So a few years ago, there's this about Twitter, like, okay, they're, you know, refactoring the ad server. And then that means that they're going to be able to go down funnel and do direct advertising easier instead of like brand advertising, realize more, more revenue per user. They're going to be able to roll out products faster. That's going to draw in more users and that creates more inventory for ad. And there's that kind of like thesis, right? And that was a thesis I bought into as well. And I think that was <laughs> pretty much wrong, <laughs> wrong. And so that's one type of error. The second type of error is just like, misunderstanding the nature of the bet that you're making, right? right? And usually the way that instantiates itself is in position sizing. The company that comes to mind there might be something like Coinbase, right? So like mm. if you're looking at Coinbase, it's like, you know, there's, you're not just having a view on crypto trading volumes, but there's also so much competition around that space and like just very valid questions about whether their margins are sustainable. And the thing about that is like, there's no amount of diligence that you can do today like you could talk to everybody in the space. You can talk to everyone at that company, but there's no amount of diligence that's going to give you a firm handle on what all that looks like in five to 10 years. There's just this insurmountable amount of uncertainty so right. that should give you pause. And that doesn't mean that you can't have Coinbase as a position, but maybe it's like more of a 3% position instead of like a 30% position, right? So like with the first type of error, which are like more analytical, I think more information can mitigate that to some degree. But when it comes to that second type of error, information can sometimes be hazardous. Uh, so I, I sent a tweet a little while back. It was like something like lots of diligence plus poor judgment can lead to terrible outcomes. And this is like what I meant by that. It's not just sunk cost fallacy where, where because you've put in a lot of work, you think that you know, you feel compelled to own a stock. It's more just that you're doing all this work and that gives you a misplaced sense of confidence. You think that you that you know more about a company that is actually knowable. And that's how you get into these positions where you find yourself in a position where like you're making some of these names a lot bigger as a percent of your portfolio than they should be. And then you're doubling down on them as they, <laughs> as they uh. trade down. And like, that's how you get into find yourself caught in a, in a real problem, I think. And so, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't want to like sound like I'm getting on my high on a high horse here and, and moral. No, no, it's great whatever, stuff. But it's because I mean, I've certainly made a few of those errors on my own. Like I own this company Upwork, right? And I, you know, my my entry price into that stock was like 16 times gross profit, and I think at one point in time it was um, it was like you know a high single digit percentage of my portfolio. So like, we're all kind of subject to it. And it's not like there are some people who have good judgment or bad judgment. It's more that people apply good and bad judgment to like different things. And I, I don't know, it's kind of a hairy topic. It's a lot of the same things I've found over time. The more I think about investing, the more I realize that when you get started, you think there are all these secrets, right? I just got to learn how to do it. Like the pros must know the real, but most of the lessons are pretty simple. They're just very hard to do consistently over time to remember, right? You yeah. have to learn them again and again and again, over and over. Learn them again and again, exactly, yeah. That's the thing, right? It's like for a human, a couple of years is a long time, but the metabolic rate of businesses is not the same, right? And so we have plenty of time to forget a bunch of important lessons during 2021 when everything is going up, and then we relearn them again, <laughs> right, a year later. Yeah. 
and and hence I, it all looks pretty simple, right? A bunch of people overpaid for a bunch of really good companies that were overvalued uh, because interest rates were low and FOMO and, and, and this and that. But all that stuff is super obvious, except when you're in the middle of it and you have all these other psychological factors that are pushing you in ways that make you forget the lessons. And the other thing that you mentioned and that I keep learning is when you get started, you're trying to copy other people's styles, right? Oh, I'm going to invest like Buffett. I'm going to do deep value, like, I don't know, Prime Watsa or something. I'm going to, I'm going to be like Strachan Miller and Tepper or like people pick heroes and mentors and they try to imitate them, right? I've read Seeking Alpha pieces of people who think they're George Soros, right? But <laughs> figuring out what works for you matters a lot more than figuring out what's the best way in the abstract, right, out there. Because you're not Buffett, you're not Soros, you're not right, Druckenmiller. Miller. Exactly. Figure yeah. out who you are, right? So the way I invest would be different if I was smarter, if I knew more about, I don't know, biotech or other industries, right? But I know, I know the things I know, I have the limitations I have. I also have limitations that I decide to have, right? So if I decided to shut down a bunch of stuff that I'm doing in my life, I would have more time to learn about X, Y, Z. But if I don't want to do that, I should be aware of those limitations and not you know, overextend myself in those directions. And so, yeah, figuring out like what works for you and, and what your limitations are is worth a bunch of IQ points, right? As Buffett would say, just learning the, your psychology and like when you freak yeah. out when everybody else is freaking out and knowing that stuff about you is more important than like, you know, doing fancy math on Excel spreadsheet. Yeah, totally agree. Yep. All right. I think that's a, that's a good, uh, I guess it's the 2022 exit interview. Yeah, I think this was a good one. Yeah, this was good. I like it. <laughs> thank you. I, I'm going to put all of your links in the show notes. Yeah, thank you, Liberty. It's great to talk to you. Bye-bye.